0: In today's 11th hour lecture series, we're very happy to have Hope Edelman with us to discuss the various neurological systems in place when our brains do the hard work of forming narratives. She'll share suggestions for how we might employ this cognitive knowledge when organizing and generating stories, and how we might recognize what the left brain and the right brain are working toward a common creative goal. Hope Edelman is the author of six nonfiction books including the bestsellers Motherless Daughters, Motherless Mothers, and The Possibility of Everything. She's a recipient of a Pushcart Prize for Nonfiction and with, was recently inducted into the Medal Hall of Achievement at Northwestern. She teaches in the MFA program at Antioch University in LA, and let's welcome her here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can you all hear me okay? I'm going to put this in my pocket now. Great to see all of you here today. Thank you so much. Um, I was telling Carol that I finished my student conferences and I had time to bike home and get my flash drive for this beautiful 30-slide PowerPoint I put together just for you. Got on my bicycle and discovered that the chain had completely released. So we're going to be retro today. I'm going to use a blackboard which I actually love because I went here in 89 to 92 before the era of smart boards or whiteboards, and I love coming back to the University of Iowa and using blackboards. So we're going to do a blackboard instead of a PowerPoint. We're going to dial back 20 years, and and use the the actual blackboard. So thank you all for coming here today. Um, As Carol said, I'm Hope Edelman. This is my 15th year teaching nonfiction at the Summer Festival. I teach memoir writing and essays predominantly, and I've been helping people tell and write their personal stories for about 25 years. I'm also trained here in the nonfiction writing program as a creative nonfiction writer with an emphasis on structure and form, so I pay very close attention to the shapes of people's stories and also the universal chords that they strike. So our 11th hour today is called The Story Behind Your Story, and we're going to be looking at the universal resonance of story, and I will, as Carol mentioned, be getting into some of the neurological processes that we employ when we're writing stories. Particularly, memoir. How many of you here are here for nonfiction? A lot of you, and the rest of you are here for other genres. Everything I say today about memoir will be applicable to fiction and much of it to poetry, but I'm going to be focusing mainly on telling your personal story. You can always slot in main character or protagonist when I talk about the author the narrator or the I so it will it will be a multi-purpose lecture but because I teach memoir and that's what I'm here to teach this week and I see all of my students in the audience I'll be focusing mostly on memoir Um, but first I want to ask is anyone taping this lecture anyone taping it Okay, if anyone decides that they want to start taping, I just ask, please don't post me online without my permission because these funky little YouTube videos show up from time to time that, that I don't know about, and they're a little startling. So I just ask from you to contact me if you want to put anything online. Okay, we're going to just start about talking about storytelling in general. For as long as humans have been telling stories, which is to say for a very long time, quite likely since the very beginning of language certain archetypes and mythic substructures have been likely to appear. And this is true whether we're talking about Greek and Roman mythology, Nordic folktales, Native American lore, Shakespearean (coughs) plays, fairy tales, postmodern literature, or even commercial films of the 20th and 21st century. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the common themes and predicaments of the human condition are that are likely to appear in such narratives The first and one of the most popular ones is the journey. And there are lots of examples of the journey. Anyone want to throw some out here? What are examples of a journey? Famous stories about a journey. The Odyssey. Yes, that's always the first one that comes up. How about the Wizard of Oz? That's a journey. What else? Any other stories you can think of? Travels with Charlie. Travels with Charlie. Okay, it's a journey. How about on the road, Kerouac? These are all journeys. Every road trip story or movie is a story of a journey. Okay, in addition to journeys, we've got stories of courage, where our protagonist taps into a form of courage. We see this a lot in the 20th and 21st century. Give me some examples, stories of courage. The Red Badge of Courage. The Red Badge of Courage, a lot of war stories, yes. How about Star Wars, too? But these are not mutually exclusive. You can go on a journey and show courage at the same time, and and most, most protagonists do. Hercules. Hercules, okay. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter is one of those stories that is going to be slotted into lots of the categories we put on the board, which is one reason why so many people have responded to that series the way they have, because it taps into so many universal themes and archetypes that we carry with us from day to day. Okay, what about loss? Stories of loss? Hmm? Think of any stories of loss? Job? Does someone say Job? Yeah. Job? What about Oedipus and Hamlet? Oh, yeah, good one. And lately, especially in the past 30 years, we've seen lots of stories of recovery. What are some examples of recovery stories? Anyone? We've got a lot of addiction recovery stories now. Excuse me? The Lost Weekend. The Lost Weekend. <clears throat> anyone read Mary Carr's memoir lit, lit Anne yeah.
1: Augustine Burroughs writes
0: dry we get lots of recovery memoirs lately um, we've got salvation stories of salvation of being saved just about every fairy tale that has a female protagonist right? we've got Sleeping Beauty Snow White they're all saved by the prince And we've also got stories of redemption. Someone's treated badly and gets, their, get, gets back at those who, or, or shows those who treated them badly. The most famous example we got of this is Cinderella. That's a redemption story. And then we have stories of uh, retribution. <laughs> Hansel and is a retribution story. funny story. So. The Godfather. The Godfather. Good one. Count of Monte Cristo. Okay, we could keep going, but this just gives you an idea of some of the, the more common themes that are out there in stories, that appear throughout the ages. And they appear throughout the ages because they have resonated with the human. They're about the human experience, and they resonate with the experience within us. So regardless of era, these are the kinds of themes that are equally as likely to appear in stories that individuals write, either from real life or from imagination. So what does every narrative have in common? Pretty much every narrative has a protagonist, also known as a hero. As the great mythologist Joseph Campbell has explained, there is no story without a hero or heroine who has an adventure, whether that's an external adventure, meaning their movement through the world, or an internal adventure. And if you're in my class this week, you're learning we're talking about the, the surface story and the deeper story. The surface story is, is, is the plotted episodic story of what happens to The narrator as they move through the world and the the deeper story is the inner journey that that person takes inside of themselves, their own personal growth from point A to point Z. Campbell said the usual hero adventure begins with someone from whom something has been taken or who feels there's something lacking in the normal experiences available or permitted to the members of his society. The person is then compelled to take on a series of adventures to recover what has been lost, or to discover a life-giving elixir. Or as the psychologist Stephen Joseph explains in a a book called What Doesn't Kill Us, which is about post-traumatic growth, this idea that we can grow from adverse life experiences, he says heroes encounter a life-changing traumatic event, and they could crumble in the face of tragedy, but instead it awakens them to new strength and wisdom. Life is forever changed. Their tragedy redefines who they are and what they must do with their lives. And this, I propose, is in large part what makes a hero heroic, the ability to triumph over adversity instead of being crippled by it. Go out in the world, have a journey, learn from it, the outer journey and the inner journey. So let's talk about memoir for a moment and how we can tell these stories on the page. Anyone who survives a less than optimal childhood or an adverse adult experience, which is to say almost everyone in existence (laughs) but anyone who survives that and writes a memoir about it I think is by definition heroic because they've achieved a level of awareness and insight that affords him or her the perspective that's needed to craft a compelling story that will go out in the world and touch other people Um, we know obviously when we're reading a memoir about a particularly chilling or dangerous or horrific event that the narrator is going to survive I mean that's a given at the beginning right because their name is on the front of a book so we know that they're writing. if they're writing a book about it, that they've made it through. But this is what we call in, in writing the willing suspension of disbelief. We go on the journey with them and we're worried they're not going to make it. Really what we're looking is to see how they survive whatever fire they're about to walk through. But, um, but we know they're going to make it in the end. So the, the heroic act is not necessarily in surviving the experience, though that's certainly part of it. It's surviving it to such an extent that one is able to process it and then find a way to share it with others. In fact, in the writing, workshop that I, I t- the writing workshops I teach, I tell my students that what happened to an individual is not what's most important to a story, which is kind of a radical statement that what happened isn't really important, but instead I believe it's how the person has processed and understands and makes sense of those experiences. I like to quote the essay, or paraphrase the essayist Vivian Gornick who's written a book that I highly recommend if you haven't read it yet. It's called The Situation and the Story. And I was in Prairie Lights the other day and I asked them to order a couple of copies because I thought some of you might want to read it. It's called The Situation and the Story by Vivian Gornick. And she says that what happens to the author is not what matters. It's what the author makes of the experience that is what matters to readers. And how each of us appraises what happens to us, however, is not a monolithic process. It doesn't mean that you'll have an experience and therefore you will have this outcome or this sense-making ability about it. I mean, if you're writing a memoir about family, you know that you and your siblings may have lived through the same experience. And you've come out of it and processed it really differently. And as adults, you'll tell the story differently, and you had different takeaways from it. And it shaped you differently, but the same experience. Um, That's because appraising what's happened to us is the result of a very complex alchemy of past experience, personal philosophy, constitution. Some people are natural optimists. Some people are natural pessimists. Also, culture if it happens to you in 20th in 21st century United States or it happened to you in wartime England you might have a different takeaway from it and genetics which ex- which really explains why two family members can lose the same individual for example and yet react to and perceive the event very differently i once had a writing student in class who was talking about the death of her mother And she said that when her mother died, she and her sister were both in the room, and they went over to the bed, and they each took one of their mother's hands, standing on either side of her. And one sister said, she's still warm, at the same time the other sister said, she's already cold. And that's a perfect example of how two people can be having the same experience in the same moment and be interpreting it very differently. And if they were to go back and write their stories of that day, they would have a different way of making sense of it. Accomplishing this type of meaning-making and reflection involves a sophisticated neurological process. Um, Daniel Siegel and Mary Hartzell, they're two psychologists, they're the authors of a book called Parenting from the Inside Out, and they explain that to develop a coherent life narrative, someone needs to use integration of both sides of the brain. It requires your left side and your right side. The left side of your brain is the part of your brain that controls linear thinking, logic, and language skills. It's very practical. It's the part of your brain that episodically tells what happened. And the right side of your brain creates context and inserts emotion into your stories. And that's the side side that makes sense of what happened and packages it for readers. Um, Interestingly, these authors say that in studies, when the left brain is physically separated from the right brain, The left brain will continue to tell stories in a sequential fashion, but the facts won't connect to each other in a subtextual manner because you need the right brain for that. And that's because left brain processing really distances us from raw emotional experiences, while right brain processing is all about placing those facts In an emotional context. So, the act of writing memoir actually integrates both sides of your brain. I think, in the world, I've been doing this for 25 years, I think that there are certain people who are just naturally left brain dominant and certain students who are naturally right brain dominant. It doesn't mean they can't learn how to use the other side of the brain more or integrate it, but it means that in a writing classroom, it's more of a challenge for a teacher. Because I've had students who are wonderful storytellers, great with detail, great with description, great with dialogue but they have trouble inserting reflection and meaning into the stories no matter how hard they try or how, many, how hard I try to work with them. It's just naturally more difficult for them. I would venture a guess that a lot of screenwriters are more left brain than right brain dominant because screenwriting is such a visual medium and, and less, of an emotional meaning, less of an emotional medium than literature is. Um, so Left brain processing distances us from the raw emotional experience. Right brain processing puts facts in emotional context. But when right brain processing floods into a story without restraint, the teller or the author quickly becomes overwhelmed with sensory detail and the emotion that comes up that results from reliving experiences especially traumatic ones because writing memoir about traumatic or adverse experiences from our past really does require us to go back and relive those events to a certain extent so as the authors of uh, as Daniel Siegel and Mary Hartzell emphasize stories that make sense of our lives require both clear thinking which is left brain and access to the equally important emotional and autobiographical autobiographical aspects of experience, which is right brain thinking. Now, the human impulse, the very natural human impulse, is often to start making ourselves, whether we're writing or talking, the heroes of our own stories. And I say often, it's often the impulse, not always, because sometimes the impulse is to make make oneself the victim. And I see both in my writing classes, where beginning writers often come to write what I've come to perceive as what I call the dominant life narrative. And that is the overarching story they've been telling themselves for so long that it has really come to define them. I do a lot of work with women who've lost their mothers, which is the subject of of three of my four first books. so with motherless daughters, it's usually the story of mother loss and how it affected them over time. But really, your dominant life narrative can be anything, really. It's usually the subject matter of an author's first book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And this is one reason why first books often take so long to write, I I think. Because it takes some writers a really long time to make sense of and let go of that dominant life narrative in order to move on to another story that, 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 that they can tell. And it's perhaps a reason why some authors produce only one book in their lifetimes, even if it's a terrific book. Because the purpose of writing the dominant life narrative was to put that inner trauma to rest, to process and make sense of it through the act of writing. And once that's been accomplished, the urgency to keep writing sometimes no longer exists. I've seen students who return to my workshops year after year writing different versions of the same story. And I, I, I'll ask them sometimes, is it because they can't figure out how to make sense of their experiences yet? Or is it because they're not yet let, yet ready to let go of the story that defines them? Or is it because they're they're still stuck in a place of resentment that doesn't allow their point of view to mature enough to see the forest for the trees, so to speak? Um, In this beautiful, beautiful memoir came out recently called The Faraway Nearby, some of you may have heard of it, by Rebecca Solnit, she talks about how stories that are fueled by resentment can be compelling to tell and to write, and they can grant immortality to old injuries— But as she points out, the teller goes in circles like a camel harnessed to a rotary water pump, around and around and around, diligently extracting misery, reviving feeling with each retelling. That's her quote. There's no inner growth, really, in those stories. And inner growth is important because a personal narrative, as I mentioned, is not just about how the world around a protagonist changes. It's about how the protagonist changes as he or she moves through that world. The movement of a protagonist's inner state of mind from point A to point Z is what we call the character arc in writing class, and if a character has an identifiable arc, the narrative has movement and the capacity to inspire readers with that growth, but if a character's inner life plateaus and they're not changing and growing throughout the course of a story, the narrative stalls no matter how much continues to go on around her in the outer world. So I'm going to talk with you a little bit now about how we tell our stories because that often offers clues about the universality of the stories that we all tell. I'm going to begin with a primer on narrative structure which some of you may have covered in high school English or college English classes and I give a very similar lecture to my writing students at the beginning of their creative nonfiction courses and my students this week have already gotten it so this is going to be a refresher for them and maybe add a little bit more has anyone here seen the uh, YouTube video from 2005 of Kurt Vonnegut? It's called The Shapes of Stories. Anyone seen it? Oh, it's wonderful. You have, Cynthia? It's wonderful. You've got to go to YouTube, just put in Kurt Vonnegut, The Shape of Stories. It's not very long. It's Kurt Vonnegut in a suit in his beautiful deadpan fashion talking about his interpretation of narrative structure. Again, about four and a half minutes. And it begins with the format that he calls the man in hole. And the man in the hole format, as he draws it, looks like this. This is the beginning of the story. This is the end. This is kind of equilibrium. And it begins with a protagonist who's in a pretty good place in their life and then suffers an adverse experience and falls into the hole. And the whole rest of the story is about how the protagonist digs themselves out of that hole and winds up in a very, winds up in an even better place than where they began. And he said, that's important that your protagonist winds up in a better place because readers need encouragement <laughs> and they're looking for it. He, he does it so much better than I do, but that's his man in the hole diagram. Um, I, he, he says the basic idea is that people who can afford to buy books and magazines, what they love is to start with someone in a good place, they get in trouble, then they get out of trouble, and the key is to have that protagonist wind up slightly higher on the curve than where he or she started, because it's encouraging. Um, you can also read the transcript of the entire lecture, lecture online. It, it offers several equally hilarious examples, and it eventually concludes that all that really matters in good storytelling is to tell the truth, because so few people actually tell the truth these days. So I agree with Vonnegut that the key, a key ingredient to story is the introduction of trouble, often a tangled problem that needs to be unraveled, whether it directly affects the protagonist or more broadly affects his or her family or community. But I rely on a slightly different visceral representation when I talk about narrative structure, although the basic premise is the same. My diagram also follows the classic story pattern of conflict, crisis, resolution. You'll hear that in writing classes a lot. Conflict, crisis, resolution. Uh, you probably learned a watered-down version of narrative structure in high school. like I, you know you, you heard literary terms like denouement and climax. And you may have had an, an English teacher who made an inverted check mark on the board like this, which is what I use too. And I use the following symbols. I use A, B, C, D, and E. And I'll explain to you what all of those represent in that, in that representation of narrative structure. A is what we call the setup, or what I call the setup. Different instructors are going to have different terms for these, by the way. What you're getting right now are, are just mine. They're not necessarily you know, used by everyone. B is what I call the inciting incident, and that comes from screenwriting, actually. That's a screenwriting term, but I like it. C are complications and developments. D is your dramatic high point, and E is the resolution. Okay, I will back up now and tell you a little bit or explain what all this means. Okay, A, the setup. And by the way, most stories are going to follow this structure even if they're not told in a linear fashion. A story doesn't always begin with A, then introduce B, then have C, go to D, and end with E. Sometimes it's mixed up on the page. You know, Stories are often told as anachronisms. But underlying any structure will typically be this, this kind of narrative arc. Okay, A, the setup. I also call it the world of your story. That's a fiction writer's term. It introduces and establishes the world that your characters inhabit. It might describe the setting, it might introduce us to a single character so it can begin with a character sketch, or maybe it reveals a critical point of view. Most often, it will reveal the facts that readers need to know to fully understand the rest of the story. It gives your story context. And the characters are living in the world of the story, and they keep on going, living in the world of the story, except B shows up the inciting incident, which is an event, an idea, or a moment that changes the normal course of events. Put most simply, something happens. Your characters would have gone on on living in their world of the story indefinitely, if not for this event taking place and altering their trajectories. There's a saying out there in, in literature that there are only two stories, really, in fiction at least, and it's that the hero goes on a journey or the stranger comes to town. The New Yorker identified a third category recently based on a lot of the immersion memoirs that are out there. They call it the Schmo stays put. (laughs) Isn't that great? Read A.J. Jacobs' books if you want an example of that. Um, But what happens is the hero has a reason to set off on the journey. That can be an inciting incident. Someone unexpected shows up in the town. That could be an inciting incident. Or the schmo decides they're going to go out and have some kind of adventure to spice up their lives without ever leaving their living room. And that, but but that, all of those would be examples of inciting incidents. So an inciting incident happens, changes the world of the story, and a new story is set into motion. Which leads us into C, which is usually the biggest part of your story or your manuscript or your screenplay. C is also known as the middle. Screenplay, screen, uh, screenwriters say that the middle is the second, that's usually the second act of a story. They say a second act is where a screenplay goes to die because it's so difficult to you know write that much and pace it and plot it. <clears throat> but the, the C, the complications and developments, are where the main character, which in memoir is going to be you, the narrator, faces obstacles that need to be overcome on the way to a goal. It typically includes what Joseph Campbell calls the all-is-lost moment, or the black moment. It's that, that's the moment when it looks like everything's going to fall apart and the, the person who has set out on this journey or the outer journey or the inner journey or both, which exist in most stories, is not going to get what they want. It's the moment, Joseph Campbell said, when the real message of transformation is going to come. That moment when it looks like all is lost is usually a big moment in the inner journey of your protagonist. So all of those developments and complications and developments occur on the way to D, which is the dramatic high point of your story. And this is the critical moment that the story has been working toward the whole time. Narratives are always working toward something, whether it's a point of view, an insight, an action, an understanding of a person, a spiritual epiphany, a question that gets answered, a mystery that gets solved... A conflict that's resolved, or a greater acceptance of the self. What happens is your inciting incident occurs, and as a result of that inciting incident, your character now wants something that they didn't want before. And they set out on a journey to try to get it. And at D, your dramatic high point, they either get it or they don't get it. They either get it, and then you move on to the resolution, which reveals how everything falls into place after the moment or high drama or shows how the narrator copes with not getting what they wanted. And oftentimes in stories we see that what the narrator thinks they want is not what they really get, but they find out that they got something better. There's the man in the hole diagram for you, right? The resolution shows us how the narrator makes sense of and lives with the fallout from the dramatic high point. So just to give you a really simple, the simplest example of all, of a story that follows that narrative structure, I'm going to pick a fairy tale that all of you know. It's the one, one of the few stories that I can bank on everybody knowing. We're going to use Cinderella as an example. Okay, what's the setup for Cinderella? What's going on at the very beginning? I mean, the Brothers Grimm story is a little different from the Disney story, but it doesn't matter for our purposes. What's the basic setup of Cinderella at the very beginning of that story? What's the world of the story? She's a slave in her family. She's unwanted and unloved. Exactly. She's a domestic servant. She has this terrible situation. Her, her mother died. Her father married this terrible woman. He died and left her as a servant to the stepmother and the stepsister. She's got a pretty dreary life. And she would have gone on living that pretty dreary life if not for what? What's the inciting incident of Cinderella. The invitation arrives for the ball, and that's going to now set a whole story in motion because now Cinderella wants something. She wants to go to the ball. She sees it as an opportunity to be able to escape her dreary life. So in order to get to the ball, what are the complications and developments that occur? Yes, she gets the fairy godmother, she has problems getting a dress, the fairy godmother comes, the coach, the whole thing, the stepsisters in some versions slice up her dress with scissors, the mice have to come to her rescue, you know, there's a whole lot going on there. It's the big middle of the story. And then, so she starts moving in the direction of her goal, but what's the dramatic high point of Cinderella? And here's the, the key, the dramatic high point of Cinderella is not in fact when she gets to the ball. What's the dramatic high point of that story? Because the complications and developments are actually she gets to go to the ball, she meets the prince, the bell chimes, and this is all these are all complications and developments on the way to the goal. Because just going to the ball does not give her what she wants. Just going to the ball only helps her escape her dreary life for a night, right? What's the dramatic high point of Cinderella? Yeah? No, it's not. That's part of the complications and development. The shoe fits. The shoe fits. That's the moment that we know that Cinderella is going to get what she wants. The shoe fits. The prince has found her. One-line resolution of Cinderella. What is it? Most famous resolution in in, in literature. They live happily ever after. That's the resolution of Cinderella. Good job, guys. Okay, an important point about narrative is that this main character needs to have what we call a clear desire line. They have to want something. And that desire can be something tangible, like a house or a job, or it can be something completely abstract, like peace of mind or acceptance or love. But the main character's quest to fulfill the desire is the engine that keeps the story running. And remember, too, that a character's desire can change and evolve in the course of the story. If we think of Cinderella, first she wanted to escape her dreary life. Then she wanted to go to the ball. Then once she's met the prince, she wants to find her way back to the prince. So her desire line keeps changing. Same thing with The Wizard of Oz, which is another story that probably everyone is familiar with. In The Wizard of Oz, we see Dorothy's first desire was to escape her dreary life, right? Her, too. Then her dreary life in Kansas, that doesn't look like it has, it doesn't have any color in it, literally, on the screen. And then what she wants is to be able to keep her dog, right? That's her next desire. And then after the the tornado, her desire changes again. She wants to find a way back home. And to do that, she has to find the wizard, which is the next desire, which is, in fact, what leads her back home. So as I said earlier, an important point is there are two arcs in every story. You're going to see that actually happening twice in every story, side by side. They are simultaneous. First, there is the plotted story, which is the surface narrative. Those are the events that are moving the story along. It's what happened to the protagonist, and it reads like an episodic series of events. This happened, then that happened, leading to this, which resulted in this outcome, which then made that happen. But that's not enough to make a memoir, and it's really not enough to make a work of fiction either. What makes a memoir is the addition of the emotional arc, the character's inner journey, the deeper narrative. I said, I've said several times, because it's so important, that the story of the narrator's movement from one inner state to another is critical. If you're writing a memoir, you are one person when your story begins, and you are another person when it ends as a result of all that has happened to you between the first page and the last. If your narrator is the same person on the last page that she or he was on the first, there usually isn't much of a story there. One exercise that I use in writing workshops or to help Students uncover the themes in their own writing is to just throw out the question, What is this story about? It's such a simple question. It goes back to the days of my graduate workshops when Carl Klaus, who was directing the program, would sit with us in a workshop and he would open every conversation of each 15 or 20 page piece that we were workshopping the day with the very simple question What is this story about? And he would be not he would not be looking for us saying well this is a story about when I was 23 years old and I was living in Tennessee and I had these crazy friends, he was looking for us to he was encouraging us to discuss beneath that what is this story really about? It's a story about dislocation. It's a story about belonging. It's a story about culture. Just one word themes. And in my writing workshops, we can often fill up a whole board with all of the one word themes that a story is about, and that brings us right back to the beginning of this lecture which are the universal themes, this is a story about courage, this is a story about loss, this is a story about searching, a story about salvation, a story about redemption, a story about retribution. We can sometimes fill an entire half of this blackboard with one-word themes, and the more you get up there, the more you realize your story, well, the more you see getting put up there when your story is being workshopped, the more you realize the kind of universal resonance that your story has. And that's very, very important for your readers because they're not really reading your story unless you're a very famous person to discover what happened to you in the end. I mean, let's face it, we're reading memoir because we want our lives to be changed in some way. We want to achieve a certain insight vicariously through somebody else's story, or we want to learn how to live through or survive an experience that we're not sure we could live through ourselves or maybe did live through something similar ourselves. But the chances that you're going to pick up a memoir and have had exactly the same life experience as the author are slim to none, as we said, even if you grew up in the same family your experience might be different. It is not the surface story that readers are relating to when they read a memoir. It's the undercurrent. It's the lava beneath that. It is the thematic material that they're responding to because they've maybe had a story of loss in their lives or they've had a story of salvation or redemption. Or they wish they could have a story of recovery. And that's what they're keying into because writing is a reflexive experience. We're reading someone else's story, and we are automatically, either consciously or subconsciously, continuously relating that material back to our own lives. It's a completely reflexive, ongoing, continual process as we're reading a memoir. So when you're writing a memoir, it's good to keep in mind what your thematic material is, what you know, what area you're working in because then you know what your readers are going to respond to and it also helps you very much decide which scenes belong in a book and which scenes perhaps can be discarded. You ask yourself which themes in my story does this scene advance and if the answer is well none of them really I just think it's a really funny moment in my story maybe it actually doesn't belong there. It's a very helpful way for being able to determine what to put in your book and what to leave out. Because if you are writing a book, even if you have 300 or 400 pages, you probably have 1,500 easily that you could write. Writing a memoir, just like writing a novel, but even more so with a memoir, because you've got a larger mass of real experience to draw from, it's a matter of selection. Deciding what you put in and what you take out and how you're going to just pluck those pieces of your story that move the narrative along and put the, how to pluck them and put them on the page, which ones you want to choose, because there's so many to grab from. So it's a matter of selection, it's a matter of identifying your themes, and it's a matter of making sense of your story and being able to put it all together in a package that will both move and, and educate, entertain, and hopefully inspire your readers. That comes to the end of my lecture, but it leaves us with about 20 minutes for questions. So I'll be happy to answer any questions that you might have about writing in general or perhaps some questions you have about your own work or any books that you've read. Does anyone have a question? Yes, in the back. So you talked about the development of the protagonist character. Can you talk for a minute about the development of an antagonist character? I'm sorry, the development of an antagonist, an antagonist character. character? Even in the context of uh, yes, I will talk about the development, especially in a memoir, because oftentimes in a memoir, the antagonist character taps into what Rebecca Stolnik was talking about. It's very, very important, especially in a memoir, to make sure that your antagonist is not terribly one-sided, especially when we're writing stories about victimization or abuse, or we have an antagonist who's really a villain. In, in real life, no one is purely a villain. I mean, there are probably truly evil people in this world. But when they're depicted as such on the page over and over again, only in scenes of conflict or confrontation where they are consistently in the wrong, what often happens is that the reader starts siding with the antagonist a little bit, thinking, wow, this author really has something against this person. And that's not what you want to happen. So we've talked this week in my class, actually, about how you try to show some of the softer side of a, of a villain. You try to show, show that you can have a little compassion or understanding, even for the victimizers. Because in real life, no one is, is purely evil like that. Even if you have to dial back to their childhood and come up with a story from a time before they acted the way they did or show some understanding of how they became the way they did. Otherwise, you have scene after scene where a character is appearing and they're, they're nothing but negative. So you want to show the softer side of a, of a villain. And the same thing is you want to show the underside of a saint. Readers know, especially in memoir, that nobody is purely good, that even people who we sanctify in memory had moments where they may have acted in a less than ideal manner. So you want to show both sides of a person a holistic approach because that's what readers will respond to. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but that's what we talk about in memoir class. Yes? Just go on with that, Mm-hmm. And if, if, then we can see that what's effective, what's made it so, so cold and so world. Uh, right. Horrible. That's exactly one right. one of the reviewers said, I don't want to know that. I want pure evil. You know, I don't want to know what it's. <laughs> That's why there we be many reviews for each yeah. film or book. Yeah, no, some people will have that preference. I mean, that is one of the most purely evil characters in literature or cinema. But that does help us, give us, it doesn't make us maybe perhaps feel compassion for him or his acts but it at least places him within a context where we can understand why he's doing what he's doing and we can feel good about saying even if I'd lived through that I wouldn't have turned out that way yeah yes Liz in memoir writing how do you get over portraying people who are still alive and potentially not the greatest life yeah we talk about this in class a lot Um, yes The question was, in memoir, how do we depict people who who are still alive in a less than positive light? Well, you tell your story as it was true to you. You always do that. Once you start censoring yourself, you're not writing a true and honest story. And like Vonnegut said, the most important thing is that your story be true or at least true to your experience. And then you change their names, and their identifying details. If you're going to publish, the publisher's legal department will do what's called vetting the manuscript. And if they're worried that someone is going to you know, show up and, and file a lawsuit, they'll make you change all of that. Sometimes they'll make you change it anyway. As a matter of course, sometimes I change names, because it doesn't matter to the reader what the character's name is. It's what the character does and says and how they affect the story and affect me as, as the protagonist. That really matters. So you can you change names. And in some cases, you will change even identifying details. Um, the author, Monica Holloway, wrote a memoir, a beautiful memoir, about childhood abuse, um, for which her father was never prosecuted. And so when she wrote her story, which was true to her experience and that of her sister, she not only changed the name of her family and family members, she actually went so far as to change her name legally change her last name for publication purposes, and to, um, in the story, place the family in a completely different state, not even a completely different town. And none of that mattered to the telling of the story. It was still a story that was completely emotionally true, even if you couldn't say it was 100% factually true. And it still resonated with readers the same way it would have, but it protected her against the possibility of, of legal action by family members. Now, of course, there was going to be that small core of people who grew up with you and know exactly who you're writing about, and there's not much you can do about that. But if you show a good faith effort, then you cover yourself legally. But there's not just the legal question here; there is the ethical question, and the question of how do you manage that in your life? Even if your grandfather's not going to sue you, he could find ways to make your life really unpleasant, um, or you know, a sibling or whoever, whomever. Um, I always have to ask myself, well, I'm going to weigh how much and important that relationship is in my life if I think that's going to happen and, and weigh that against whether or not I actually want to publish a piece. I have certain members of my family whose relationships are so important to me that anything I write about them, I let them read, and they get veto power. It's basically my husband, my brother, and my sister – uh, and now my, my daughters, now that they're older. Um, and if there's something they don't want me to publish or that they want changed, I will either do it or I will explain to them why it's important to me to include it. And, and sometimes they'll say, okay, I understand it now. It's okay with me. Or they'll say, okay, well, can you just give me a different name? Because even though everyone that I know will know who I'm writing about, they feel more protected. Which is why, in fact, you will see an essay that I wrote for an anthology called The Bitch in the House in which my husband has a completely different name. It was the first, it may have been the first time I actually wrote about him. And he didn't want people in his industry to, he has a really, really distinctive name and he didn't want people to make that connection. So um, I used a a different name for him in that Mm -hmm. essay. And then of course, I went on to write a lot about family life and my husband has a completely different name, so some people actually thought I'd gotten remarried, it's it's someone else. (laughs) Same guy, different name. Um, The other thing is, and this is just a piece of advice from 25 years of writing nonfiction, don't assume that what you think is going to upset someone is necessarily going to upset them. What you might find is that things you never thought would would bother them are going to be the things that bother them. I've had so many experiences like this. And when I wrote um, Motherless Mothers, this was 2006, I wrote... um, uh, uh, an anecdote about how my husband decided that he wanted to walk home six miles uphill on a like one way road the wrong way in the dark and the rain one night because he felt he needed exercise so he had the guy driving him home from work drop him on Pacific Coast Highway and he walked six miles up a canyon to the house and how I was at home with the kids really really worried about what happened to him or what might happen to him. And my neighbor called just to say hello, and I told her what was going on. So we devised this whole plan where her husband was going to go down to get a carton of milk, carton of milk. And he was going to stop and make sure my husband was okay on his way down the one-way road in the canyon. So he stops, and he, you know, he sees my husband, and he talks to him, and he gets to the bottom, and he calls us. And he says, he's fine, he's great, he's pumping up the hill, he's fine, don't worry about it. And I put that in the book, because I was using it to illustrate some of my anxieties as a young mother and wife and, um, and the differences between us and the way we see the world. And I thought for sure, I was like, he's upstairs reading it and I'm wincing because I'm thinking he's going to make me take that out. He's going to be so mad that we sent John on a reconnaissance mission to find him. And he thought it was hilarious He thought it was so funny, but he really, really objected to a mention in that same chapter or somewhere near there. He really objected to me mentioning that he had been answering emails when I was in labor, (laughs) which I thought was completely innocuous. I was using it as an example of I had like a 40... I don't know I had a 51 hour labor people I mean my my husband was allowed to answer emails but I really objected to it at the time and I was using it as an example of how unreasonable I was you know being at that throughout that and that because he couldn't be expected to sit by my side for 51 hours awake paying attention to me but that's what I was demanding so I put in there and he was so upset that I had mentioned that that and he didn't want anybody to know that he had been less than a perfectly attentive husband so I said okay fine I'll take it out so it's not in the book of course now all you know about that <laughs> but um that was you know i took it out so people will object to things that you would never imagine they'll object to so don't second guess just write your story as truly as possible change the names to protect the innocent and the guilty and and hope for the best yes Tricia? Yeah. So in the process of writing things that are true, mm-hmm. I found that they become true-ish, they true-ish change, yeah. they change unchange ways that you don't intend to, but so mm-hmm. they're no longer exactly true, but yeah. inspired by I wish I had a really hard and fast yes, the question was where is the line between fiction and between non fiction and fiction? Because when you start changing some details or recreating things from memory, it starts becoming true ish. And when have you crossed the line from nonfiction into fiction? I wish I had a really clear, hard and fast answer for you that everyone in this room could use as a guideline. But the secret is you get to choose. Really, you get to choose. You and later on, if you publish, your editor. Uh, sometimes your agent who goes out and sells the book gets to help you decide too. And, and that line is in a different place for every different writer um, I know where I draw my line, and if I start crossing that line, then I would start calling it fiction. But there are other memoirists who take great liberty with facts and characters, and they, um, they're okay with that. Um, I think there's, when you really start making up things that didn't happen and can be proven to be untrue, like James Fry with A Million Little Pieces, for example, you're, you're, you could get in big trouble. You might get scolded by Oprah. But um, we should all be so lucky to have a book that gets scolded by Oprah, right? Um, But um, I, I, I don't ever recommend purely making things up that didn't happen just to have a better story. But sometimes you'll have to make up dialogue or details because you remember that something happened, but you can't remember what people said and you can't remember what room it happened in. And in that case, I'm okay with it because it's still true to your story. Um, But it's really up to you. Every writer has their own comfort zone. And I just encourage you to stay in it, because once you step out of your comfort zone and you start calling something by a label that it's not, you start feeling uneasy inside. And there's no reason to do that, because you have the choice between fiction and nonfiction. And in the end, I'm not sure it matters that much. I think you need to go out in the world and write stories that inspire people and write stories that you love. Fiction or nonfiction, in the end, the label doesn't matter. Write a story that changes people's lives and you're doing pretty good. In some of my fiction writing classes, one of the things I've been learning is that when you create a character, sometimes you create a character so that you, as the character develops, the ending comes out of how the character would act. Yeah. So can you speak to that with nonfiction? Oh, yeah. You have... Uh, you know, if you're writing a memoir, something that's about you, do you have to know where the story is headed, what the theme is, what it's about before you begin, do you think? Or it's mm-hmm. kind of like, because how do you create the ending, Yeah. you know? Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you know exactly what story you're going to write because it's happened, and you're choosing it from real life. Uh, fiction writers invent their storyline or allow it to unfold, Whereas nonfiction writers have to find that storyline from this mass of raw material that they've already lived through. Um, and so sometimes you, you'll, you'll absolutely know. You'll live through something that has a very distinct beginning, middle, and end, and you'll know it right away. The memoir that I published in 2009, which is called The Possibility of Everything, is the story of bringing my three-year-old daughter to Mayan healers in Central America to um, get rid of her imaginary friend. It's kind of a kooky story, but as soon as I got back from Belize, I knew I had a story with a very distinct beginning, middle, and end, because I knew how it ended. Um, But in the course of writing that story, I discovered things about my inner journey that I hadn't been aware of at the time, because that often comes later when you've had time to process and make sense and look back. So that was a process of discovery, but I kind of knew where the story began or what happened and where it ended. I knew that arc really well. I knew exactly what the dramatic high point was. Um, But when you're writing nonfiction, sometimes you start off writing a story and you think it's going in one direction and you discover that it's actually going in a different direction and where you thought it was going to end is not where it ends. Maybe it ends sooner. The last book that I did, which was with the actors Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez, it was my first collaboration. I was helping them tell their life story. I remember sitting outside a cafe in Malibu and calling up Emilio and saying, Emilio, I'm going to float an idea by you. Because he's a screenwriter. He knows all about story. I said, I actually think we don't need the last three chapters of the book. I think this story ends in the mid-90s when you're at a a men's retreat with your dad out in Ojai, California, I think actually the emotional arc of the story ends there, and that everything else should be in an epilogue at the end, one chapter later. Because we had plotted out the whole book, we storyboarded it, we we had, you know, and, and then we realized we actually didn't need all the stuff that happened. It was all resolution. And so we discovered through the course of writing at the, which was great because then we were done earlier but the book ended much sooner than it did because through the course of writing we started to see the emotional arc of the story and as it emerged we realized that the dramatic high point happened in 92 not in you know, 2012 or 2010 like we thought it did yes in the back Okay, when I wrote my, the question was, when I wrote my books about mother loss, did I organize my own story in a narrative fashion, or did I do it with the stories of other people? Yeah, Yes. Like each section, you yeah. have to make someone else's story. Yes, um, that, book was an, that, that was my first book, Motherless Daughters, and that was not a pure memoir. Which, that, that book was um, a, what I call a re- reported memoir. It was a hybrid. It was one-third memoir, one-third research, one-third interviews with women who'd lost their mothers. So that book didn't follow a real narrative structure. But each chapter opens with a mini memoir. And each of those mini memoirs, which is about you know anywhere between three and maybe seven or eight pages of book pages, has its own narrative arc. And they follow, for the most part, a chronology throughout my life. But the book itself did not have that kind of overarching arc, except that I tried to order the chapters in a way that began with the loss itself and ended with stories of recovery. Um, but that book itself did not follow that arc. I let the other women, each woman's story has its own sort of little arc in it, if, 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 I, let them, if, I'm allowed, if I can manage to let them speak for long enough. But um, my my narrative in in those stories were very small and self-contained and sprinkled throughout the book as they applied to the theme of each chapter. We have time for one more question, if anyone has one. Any burning questions? All right, then we're going to close for today. Thank you for your time and your attention. I hope it was helpful.